morning. Good morning. Happy April in Minnesota. <laughs> so for those of you on Zoom, we got what, like six inches Friday night into Saturday, eight inches of snow. So I'd like to start my talk by reminding us that we have the chance to practice here today because of all the various causes and conditions that support us being here. So some, some of those causes and conditions may be things we don't like to think about, like the fact that we are on land stolen from the ancestors of our Dakota siblings, and that many of us still reap benefits from the legacy of slavery in this country, and even that this practice, which we treasure, was until very recently denied to the parents and grandparents of our Japanese siblings. Part of our practice is to acknowledge and receive the whole works and let our actions arise from that. So acknowledge and receive deeply in our bodies beyond what we're thinking about it and seeing what arises, and then our action flowing from that. So may the seeds for various wholesome actions arise through this talk. So today we're celebrating Buddha's birthday. That's why you see the little um, arbor that's here with a little statue of a baby Buddha underneath. We'll say more about that in a moment. So this is one has the hand of one finger pointing toward the heavens and one toward the earth, but unfortunately the finger broke off. So oh. it looks just like his hand on his head, but it should be like this. And that after many pouring water over, I guess the water eventually maybe it happened like that. I'd like to share a few stories about Buddha's birthday ceremonies that took place at the Japanese internment camps during World War II. These stories are from Duncan Ryokin Williams. I found them in, uh, they might, they're probably in various places, but I found them in uh, La Femme's quarterly magazine online. So I'll just read these stories, they're short. At Camp McCoy in Wisconsin, Bishop Kyo Kujo Kubakawa of the Jodo sect, a priest who had been arrested in Hawaii in his Buddhist robes, officiated at the first Buddhist birthday ceremony in the camp. With these robes, he had arrived in the internment camp as the only priest with the appropriate attire to officiate such an auspicious occasion. One other priest wrote that he had only a single pair of underwear, a pair of pants he'd been, been, been unable to wash, and a belt made of rope. To the disheveled men, Bishop Kubakawa delivered this sermon. Your participation in those filthy clothes can be likened to the Buddha's teaching of the lotus blooming in the mud. 
In these muddiest of waters, the men found ways to embrace all manner of karmic hindrances and to realize the lotus mind of freedom, wisdom, and compassion. At another Buddha's birthday ceremony in Fort Lincoln internment camp in North Dakota, Reverend Bunju Fujimura from the Salinas Buddhist temple noted how the group managed to improvise with the no normal items typically employed on an auspicious day. So here's what he said about that. We did not, of course, have a single religious implement to use for Buddhist services. We did not have a baby Buddha statue. We did not have other ritual tools, flowers, incense, or any of the implements used in the Buddhist birthday celebration. Fortunately, we were with many people who were clever with their hands. Arthur Yamabe borrowed a carrot from the kitchen and carved a splendid image of the baby Buddha. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the ritual to mark the birth of the religion would normally have included the ceremonial pouring of sweet tea on a statue of the newborn Buddha. Without, without such items, the Buddhist priests imaginatively recreated the ritual for themselves, collecting rationed sugar from other internees, stirring the sugar into coffee to concoct an American approximation of the traditional sweet mm. tea, and pouring it over the carved curate. Making do was, of course, part of the Buddhist tradition. Throughout Buddhist teachings, there are examples of people using whatever ingredients they could assemble. So this story just really touches my heart. And then as we do this, and I i don't know how many ceremonies, I've over 20 Buddhist birthday ceremonies, and I think I haven't realized how precious it actually is that we can have these kinds of ceremonies with these implements. So there's a deep um, gratitude as well as a deep um, reckoning with the legacy of our country's treatment of uh, Japanese, especially Buddhist Japanese um, people during World War II. So just, I would invite us just to take a moment to pause and receive that information. So as we commemorate Buddha's birthday, I'd like us to consider impermanence, birth and death. So this is uh, many, many rituals that we do uh, remind us of impermanence. This is a joyful ritual because it's a ritual of birth. So, um, so we have flowers, we have bathing ritual, you know, that's, that's very nice, but we recognize also the impermanence. And in spring, we mostly think of birth, uh, but death is happening too. So I, I thought about this, winter is dying, maybe not fast enough, <laughs> but, <laughs> but things are changing. So as even as new buds are born, like you can see on the trees, some of the, you know, they're just, they're not cracked open yet. You can see the buds. When the leaves spring out, then that casing dies. So there, there is a birth and death that's always happening. Um, 
And there's also a way in which with when we think about the birth side of birth and death, there is an element of waiting, I think. So like when a woman is pregnant, there's waiting for the baby to be born. There's many um, religious traditions in which there's waiting, in which there's things that are dark. Well, I know from myself being raised Catholic, and now we're sort of entering, you know, toward the end of Lent now, Easter is next Sunday. So this was traditionally a period of waiting. And especially I remember um, after Good Friday, between Good Friday and Easter morning, the church was, it was dark. So like there weren't, I don't even remember if they, they, if there were banners, they were covered up. So there weren't like decorations. It was like, this is, this is waiting for a resurrection in that, in that tradition. But the sense of just waiting in the darkness um, was very moving to me. So um, I think recognizing that where we're waiting for something is, it's not anti-Buddhist. <laughs> we can be waiting for something and feeling what's happening in the moment of waiting without a certain expectation or maybe with an idea or a hope of what might happen, but we don't know. And in our teaching, the waiting, I mean, there can be, there's uh, birth and death is happening all the time. Uh, the, the Buddha said, oh, monks, every moment you are born, decay, and die. And even within a moment, there are many instances of birth and death. So we have, um, in our opening chant, we say, um, this, this teaching is, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's rare, it's not, it's even in a hundred thousand million countless. Yes. Rarely met with, rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. So kalpa is like an extremely long, long period of time. Said if there was a mountain that was 16 miles wide, 16 miles deep, 16 miles that was you know, made of solid rock, and, uh, and a dove flew by every 100 years brushing the tip of its wing along the top. Um, when the mountain was worn down, that still wouldn't be the length of a pulpa. Like <laughs> so, a really long period of time. We also in Buddhism talk about really short periods of time, like a kasana, which is in Buddhism considered the smallest unit of time. And it's said to be approximately one seventy-fifth of a second. And so you can maybe kind of sort of get that in your mind. But then it's said within one kasana, there are 900 instances of arising and ceasing. So 900 instances of birth and death. Mm -hmm. So I did the math. It's like if a kasana is the 75th of a second and there are 900 instances of rising and ceasing in a kasana, it means there are 67,500 instances of birth and death per second. Mm. <laughs> so let's think about that. Or not think about it. Let's receive it. I'd like to share a little something on this teaching from uh, Venerable Master Sing Yun. 
he says, during any particular moment of our thought, we see flowers as red and leaves as green. In reality, they are constantly changing from kasana to kasana, and after a while, they will wilt. Within each kasana, they are perpetually growing and wilting. So we don't see that. You know, we, at some point, we, we notice it. But we don't, you know, but it is going on all the time. And then at a certain point, it's like there's critical mass. <laughs> and then suddenly we notice, oh, the flowers are real good. But that growing and wilting is happening all the time. He has another example. Take the example of a table. We see it standing firmly. However, if we were to look at it under an electron microscope, we would see that the internal fiber structure of the wood is changing, expanding and contracting as it decays from kasana to kasana. In a hundred years or 200 or 300 years, this table will no longer be any good. So eventually it falls apart. He says, there is a saying, when a young man snaps his fingers, 63 kasanas have gone by. I guess that makes sense because the kasana is one seventy-fifth of a second. Snap, a finger snap is a little less than a second. But just to think what's in that second, what's in that finger snap. So it's a sense of time going by very fast. Youth can disappear in a flash. So when we think about time that way, when I think about it, I wonder, you know, I'm just thinking, how does that inform my practice? So if I consider 75 kasanas per second, how does that impact how I walk across a room? How I eat my lunch? How I wash my hands? How I sit down on my cushion or bow? For me, when I consider this, notion of time in terms of kasanas and 67,500 instances of arising and ceasing in a second, it actually slows me down because I'll never catch up with the kasana. So I might as well be present to my life as much as I can be to just allow birth and death to turn and turn while I'm sitting right in the middle of it. So then I wonder, how is this when we're waiting for something to happen? We're waiting for some change to take place. We're waiting for justice. We're waiting for a baby. We're waiting for a new job. We're waiting for enlightenment, whatever it is. We're waiting to be feel free and at ease. So sometimes there's a waiting and a longing for something big to be born. And it is important to remember that all of this, while we're waiting, all of this is still going on. This arising and ceasing is still happening at super speed. But it's also important not to dismiss when something big happens. So something big is something big. It's big when a baby is born or a person dies. It might be one kasana. It's that one kasana that suddenly we notice, oh, now it's different. 
you know, people who get older, it's like our skin is changing and one day we notice a wrinkle. <laughs> See, that wasn't there before, but it was actually forming little by little by little. <laughs> And then when that suddenly, when we see it, then it's big. It, then it's like, okay, now I'm perceiving it. Or maybe now I'm waiting for that one big thing to happen. We can have a sense of it's all changing, but then allow ourselves to have that waiting and longing. It's not a feeling we should ignore. I think it's really... I mean, when we're longing for wholesome things, um, it's the cry of our heart for freedom and liberation and peace and harmony. And it's really the root of our bodhisattva vow to free all beings. And just like a baby can be born, a, born, a vow can also be born. So that turning suddenly, oh, now I see, this is my vow, that can happen. So we might think a thought like, I should save all beings, or I should um, help people, I should be a better person. We might have about something like that, I should save, but let's say it was, I should save all beings. Like we hear about bodhisattvas who have a vow to save all beings, and we think that's what I should do. And that is a noble thought, but it's not the same as a vow that comes from within, that comes from a deep shift in our understanding. So we might have a thought, I should save all beings, but it's sort of feeling like it's what I should do. It's not really from within, like what I really, my heart's innermost heart desire. But we could start there. I should, and then we could notice that we're judging ourselves, and we could notice like how that plays out, the should, and we could still say it is something I want. And then how do I, how am I receiving this? How am I um, embodying this? How am I digesting this idea? So letting it come in in that way. When we truly realize in our bones that we're not separate from all beings, then the vow to save all beings just naturally arises. We can't force it to arise, but we can wait for it to happen. So again, with the waiting, it can be a sense of waiting in the dark, a waiting in the not knowing. We might have an idea, I'd like this to happen, whether it's a vow to save all beings or a baby to be born or whatever, um, but can we sit in the not knowing with the waiting and then see? And can we create conditions that increase the chances of it happening? Like if it's a baby to be born, maybe mama takes care of herself and as much as possible, good nutrition, rest, exercise. Um, if it's uh, we want to realize a vow of saving all beings, what can we do to um, create the conditions for us to know and are really deep in ourselves that we're not separate? So that might look like sitting zazen, it might look like practicing the precepts, might look like connecting with other sangha members. Might look like considering the path of practice in terms of ethical conduct, which include, you know, if we look at the Eightfold Path, ethical conduct, right speech, right action, right livelihood, mental discipline, 
which include right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, and wisdom, which include right thought and right view. So that's a, a lot to think about. And I think one thing we can do right here as we do this ceremony is we could start with just practicing right mindfulness. You could practice any of them as you come up and bathe the baby Buddha. But right mind, being mindful of what you're doing um, might be good. And then also not being mindful isn't the same as like trying to get it right. <laughs> So you'll ha you'll hear some instructions in a little bit about how we're going to do the ceremony. But I really invite you to just be mindful of what you're doing and know it's okay if you make a mistake and everyone will help you and it will all be fine no matter what happens. Um, but we can maybe pay attention to what we're doing, how it feels in our bodies when we love and care for each other in this Sangha. And we can also, in addition to noticing and being mindful of bathing the baby Buddha, being mindful of each other as we move together, uh, we can take this practice of mindfulness into this week. And because we practice bathing the baby Buddha, maybe we can pay attention when we're bathing or showering, or if we're caring for children or elders, we can bathe them mindfully with love. Like as if baby, bathing the baby Buddha, we could do that for ourselves. We take a shower or a bath, bathing the baby Buddha in me. So this is a way where even though life and death, the rising and ceasing are happening at super speed and going on, we can still open our hearts to all this. So we have a few minutes before we need to close and start the ceremony. So I'll just bow to you. Thank you for your kind attention. And see if there's anyone who has a question or comment. Yes. So I'm thinking, because of where I'm sitting here in the room this morning, I've been thinking about perception and how all of us are seeing things in a slightly different way because so it's not exactly where you're sitting here. It's a very lovely and, and I it made me think like, all of us where we are in the room are in the, like we're all seeing things slightly different and none of us has the complete picture of everything. And so I like the idea it, it makes me feel happy to sit here and know that you know we all have part of what's actually going on and how us see things. Um, but also it's just a very lovely happy way. <laughs> <laughs> For those on Zoom, I'll just say I'm sitting like directly through the canopy of flowers from Daishin, so when she looks at me, she's looking to you. And we have Martha on Zoom says, I love the descriptions of time that you provided. Yes. I really appreciated hearing about the uh, internment camps at this particular 
celebration. It was very meaningful. I almost thought, well, so many people must have heard those stories, but I, but I got the sense that no, that wasn't true. So I'm not sure. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for saying waiting is okay in Buddhism. <laughs> but I'm sure there's, you know, of course we can look into how am I waiting and what am I adding into this waiting period. But even so, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's really the key. If I'm waiting, attached to it being having a certain outcome, that's suffering. And that's, you know, that's maybe not really fully embodying the practice. But if I'm waiting, I'm noticing I have an idea of what I would like, you know, especially for people working for social justice. I have an idea of what I would actually like to see happen, and I'm waiting for it, and then maybe I'm taking some action to see it happen. Or maybe I, maybe it's that I want to be enlightened, <laughs> I'm taking it. I have an idea. That's okay. But can I let go? Can I have the idea? But let go of attaching to it, like that it has to be this way. And that way, maybe something will arise that will be equally wholesome, but it won't be like what I expected. It'll be something else. And if I expect a, a certain thing and then something else arises that's equally wholesome, I might not even notice it because <laughs> I'm so focused here. Um, but I do think it's really rich in, in the, the practice of waiting, and it is in many cultures and religions where you're in the dark, you're, you're actually you're waiting for some something. So let's honor that because that's a human thing. Yes, I was thinking that sometimes when you're waiting, it's um, more like preparing. Yeah. Right. Preparing and can also be, like I said, creating the conditions that may, might make it possible for this thing to happen, which is you know something we can do. And again, we can do those things with attaching to an outcome, and we or we could do them with letting go of attaching to an outcome. And we can notice when we're attaching, and then we can let go of our judgment about that. <laughs> and so we can keep practicing letting go in different ways. Oh. oh, we have a uh, Kim. Go ahead, Kim. Hi. Yeah. So, Zan, I have a question for you regarding waiting. So, um, you know, I've been in health recovery for some time, and I'm very attached to being healthy. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I would, I'm not really able to be unattached to wanting to be healthy. So, I'm, I'm, I'm I welcome your comments about that. Well, someone asked a question when I did the loving kindness practice about, because um, I use the word, um, you know, there's a phrase like, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be at ease. And someone, Andrea, I think, asked a question about, well, what about if I have a chronic health thing? Like even saying, may I be healthy, it seems a little off. And so I remembered that the traditional phrase is, may I have physical happiness? So that's one idea that so you could change it to, you know, see if I can like set my sight on physical happiness. What that means. 
how that feels in my body. So someone, even if they have some health issues, might be able to manifest or receive, embrace some physical happiness. And so that might be noticing like, is there somewhere in my body that's happy right now? <laughs> maybe most of my body is in pain, but maybe there's some part of my body that I can realize actually does have happiness. So, so that would be one thing. Another thing is that if I completely understand if you're not healthy, that there's a longing and a wish for health. So then just acknowledging, like I am a human being who has a longing and a wish for health and see that and receive that, how that is in my own body to have that wish. Notice when I really attach to like wanting it to be true, how that adds a layer of suffering. I can let the wish be there. I think there's a way to let the wish be there without adding the extra layer of suffering, but it has to do with letting go of attaching that it has, that the outcome has to be a certain way because we never have any control over what the outcome will be, whether it's our health or whatever it is. So I hope that helps you somewhat. Thank you. Yeah, I think it, uh, the acknowledgement uh, is helpful because it's, um, it's grieving, I think is the, the issue now. Thank you. Uh, thank you for saying that word. That is important. Yes. Anyone else? We have time for, we're no, more. we don't have time. We do not have time. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you for your thoughts.